Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, this show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Good evening, Kieran. Sunday, how are you? I'm, I'm very good. I've just been cooking a 12-hour chilli, so uh, just just had that with the Baroness, um, and it's, uh, yeah, hit the spot. Is it? Is it... I'm going to controversially suggest, Kieran, is it nine hours better than my three-hour chilli, would you say? <laughs> <laughs> It's it's mellowed. It's yeah. It's it's chilled yeah. out, um, which is got, usual in a chili. Has it got? That's true. Has it got uh, cheese and marmite in it? Like most of your other cooking. <laughs> no, no. I'm uh, because we have to eat it together. Um, oh, do you? Uh, anything which involves cheese and marmite uh, does, oh, right. does not pass the uh, the, the Baroness's approval uh, yeah. nod. And uh, we both know if you don't get an approval nod, you're in deep doo doo. Yeah, you, you realise this is the one that BAFTA are listening to already, Kieran, don't you? So, uh, I'm, I'm going to make it worse as well, but Kieran, I'm just going to let you know if you if you sense a degree of uncertainty, it's because, like many performers, as you know, I, I have a routine. I don't like the routine being disturbed. And unfortunately, Smudge was fast asleep on my, my podcasting chair. Oh, no. So I'm around the other side of the table. I'm, I'm playing towards the kitchen end. <laughs> playing away from the kitchen end, and it's it's unsettled me slightly. But it's questions day, Kieran. Uh, <clears throat> astonishingly, we don't have any questions about how much Chelsea spent during the transfer window, which was, um, <laughs> unless that phone call you just had was about questions that Chelsea spent. It. I found myself on on Talk Sport yesterday, and I've become so oh, obsessed. Cool. I've become so obsessed with. Well, that's I found myself, and they asked me to do it. I didn't just say hello. Well, while I'm here, I might as well talk to you on Talk Sport. Uh, I found myself answering the question about how Chelsea were able to do this and profit is immediate and loss over five years. And they said, yeah, we asked you about Will Sahar's injury, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Um, and talking about talk sport, and it's almost like you and I pre-prepared this, Kieran, uh, rather than just turning up, trying to shift a cat off a chair and plugging the microphone in. Our first question comes from Nick Pooley. Uh, Nick Pooley says, uh, I was listening to Simon Jordan on TalkSport recently. There's your first mistake, Nick. There you go. Um, Simon, uh, sorry, I know you get on quite well with Simon, didn't you? Which is, uh, he uh, he texted me yesterday. Did he? To say, yes. what's, what's that idiot Kevin Day doing on TalkSport? <laughs> <laughs> what did Simon Jordan text you about yesterday? Uh, just, it was about Chelsea's amortisation policy, <laughs> actually. <laughs> this, this is becoming very circular. Yeah, yeah. Simon Jordan here. Uh, tell me about Chelsea's amortisation policy. P.S. Don't put Marmite in your nine-hour chilli. <laughs> anyway, Nick Pooley says, I was listening to Simon Jordan, and he was complaining. Oh, there's the next bit. Yeah. He was complaining <laughs> about how players are not the only payers of their agents. He said clubs pay them as well. In the entertainment industry, I believe, only the performers can pay their agents, uh, which is true. I have checked that, but no one seems to know whether that's a legal uh, reason or it's just custom and practice. Uh, but why, says Nick, is this industry not standard in football? Is it an oversight or is there a reason? Sure, this, this would allow greater transparency on agent payments and reduce corruption and unaccountable losses from the game. I have no issue with the idea of an intermediary, as players do not necessarily know how to negotiate contracts. But why do buying clubs need to pay fees on the deals like Mbappe, Haaland, Neymar? And this is a question that does come up uh, frequently, Kieran, which, again, is one of the reasons I'm happy to talk about it for newer listeners it, it's it's a huge issue for Simon Jordan because back in the day we were about to sign 
um, Cahill, Tim Cahill. We were in a relegation. Yeah. We were in a relegation battle. We were about to sign Tim Cahill. We could have kept us up, but Jordan refused to sanction the transfer in the end because the agent asked for a five percent bonus from the club, which Simon Jordan refused to pay, and we didn't get uh, Cahill. So it's it's certainly something Jordan has stood by. Although it then turned out that Simon Jordan had uh, a share in a football player agency anyway, which is all a bit odd. So can we, this is a roundabout way of saying Nick, Nick's question. Um, right. Um, as far as other industries are concerned, um, if you go to uh, an auction, an, an auctioneer is effectively an agent hmm. and they charge both the buyer and the seller. If you look at a corporate takeover, um, the acquiring company, organization uh uses agents except we call those um mergers and acquisition bankers and accountants and lawyers and the the selling company also as agents who do exactly the same thing if if we're if we have a property the the seller will be will be probably using an agent um and the buyer will go to the agent now the buyer won't the buyer won't actually be paying the agent a fee so in the case of football player registrations um the the player normally seeks representation because and, and I think Nick was Nick, Nick was was uh, implying this that the the player might not have an understanding of value the player might not be familiar with contract law um, and therefore you 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 effectively delegate that to a, a professional um, the the buying club is looking for somebody to help facilitate the deal um, and when when we talk to chief executives of both selling clubs and buying clubs, they say quite often the the agent makes life easier for us because they're able to, normally a a, a club will make an offer um, and the the chief executive might say, we're going to let our agent deal with this because we think they've got a better indication of value. Um, As far as the likes of Paul Pogba was concerned, I think this was quite a a famous one, that the player wanted to move from Juventus to Manchester United in 2016. Juventus wanted to sell the player and Manchester United wanted to buy the player. And Mino Raola um, trousered about 30-odd million from all three parties. So um, it, the reason why it continues is because the parties involved in the world of football are are happy. You know, if, you, if you decide to uh, take a a moral or ethical stance on it as you know, and you made reference to, to Simon Jordan and, and Tim Cahill, um, then you risk losing the deal. So, you know, buying clubs are, will often use agents. They will say, you know, are you any, you, are you aware of any 22 year old right backs? Um, and now I, I would say at the elite level of football, they probably have done their own research, but do we know whether that player is is unhappy or not? Well, here the agent could could be the right person to go through, because you can't approach a player directly. But yeah, in the world of football, which is lots of nudges, nudges, and quite a few winks, um, you you can potentially contact the agent and say, um, "Is is your client happy where they are?" And that's not approaching the player. So can you see that that this is where the agent is acting as an intermediary. Um, I, I don't. I don't think that you will get greater transparency um, in terms of agents' payments or reduce corruption. 
Um, there, there are, yeah, we, we said there are good agents and there are bad agents. Um, it's it's a very very difficult industry to police. Uh, in terms of unaccountable losses from the game, again, I, I don't see this. I, I know people will say, well, if, if we're giving the agents ten percent of everything, that's ten percent of money going out of the game. But you know, when 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 you put on the floodlights, that's money going out of the game. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, it, it's a bad thing. So um, buying clubs are, are willing to to pay the fees because it gets them into the good books. If you if if you are the agent of of Haaland and you know that Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea, Real Madrid are all interested in your client, um, getting the agent on board can be of benefit to the buying club. And, and it's I'm not condoning it. But it is the way of the world. You know, I, I've, I've never been in a position where two or three employers have wanted me at once. In fact, I spent most of my career with struggling to find one. But if if if, that, if the situation is different, then then the, the agent can go to both the buying club and the selling club and say, "Look, I can get you a better deal. I can persuade this, that, or the other." And if if the agent doesn't do that, we we both know managers who will effectively act as agents in terms of deals. And there are some clubs which are agent-led in terms of transactions, and there are some clubs which are manager-led in terms of transactions. And I wouldn't say that one is better than the other. A couple of things arising from that, Kieran. First of all, what do you mean exactly by you've never been in a situation where two or three people want to employ you at the same time? By my reckoning, I stopped counting at 21 TV and radio appearances <laughs> on transfer deadline day. So you definitely were in demand there, Kieran. <laughs> uh, and secondly, you refer, I mean, what you refer to there without saying it is, is tapping up. People will approach agents, yes. and approach, which is the thing <clears throat> you look at EFL and Premier League regulations. The tapping up is probably one of the things that more words are spent forbidding it than anything else. And yet it probably goes on more now than it ever, ever used to. Um, and thirdly, you may have heard some extraneous sound effects uh, in the early part of your answer there, Kieran. That's because Smudge woke up, uh, dis- <laughs> decided that as I was facing a different direction, I can't be podcasting, and therefore decided to sit in front of the laptop. Uh, so you heard the sound of me trying to persuade a slightly overweight cat to uh, leave by a door that wasn't open, I realised. So then I had to open it, and then she decided this was the best game ever. So. Uh, it may continue. Um, this is definitely the one BAFTA are listening to. They've probably they've had a six month yes. they've had a six month break, and they've probably thought, "I wonder if they sorted out the dog and cat issue." And uh, they probably they're probably not talking about food anymore, are they? On this pod, I doubt Simon Jordan even gets a mention these days. And then whack. <laughs> uh, Tom Burrows has our next question. Tom says, "I'm a Notts County fan. We've had quite a few Notts County fans recently, mm-hmm. actually, um, and none of them are about a club being in trouble, which is <laughs> refreshingly nice." But Tom says, I'm a Notts County fan, and in the summer, the club signed striker, uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Sedwin Scott from Gateshead for an undisclosed fee. Later the same day, Notts then sold striker Lewis Knight to Gateshead, also for an undisclosed fee. Would I be right, says Tom, to assume that the reason for doing this, rather than as a swap deal plus cash, would be to allow both clubs to record a higher value intangible asset on the respective balance sheets? Or is there potentially a different motive behind this? This also got me thinking further on swap deals. How do clubs determine the value to be recorded as an intangible asset in a swap deal, particularly in the lower leagues when there's not as much of a market for player trading involving fees? Is, is this similar 
on a lower level to the, the deal you're always talking about between that Barcelona and Juventus did. Um, yes, yes, um, and I, I, I don't think there's any pampas grass related issues between Notts County and Gateshead uh, when it comes to this particular swap. Um, but <laughs> you, you, do you want to explain that, Kieran, to the uninvited, or uh, not? Not if we want to keep on air. Well, I doubt it's traditionally, uh, dear listeners, in uh, 1970s jokes mainly and the odd film. Uh, the existence of pampas grass outside a house was an indication that uh, swapping partners uh, was, was was available, shall we say, which was slightly confusing because a lot of people had pampas grass, so there must have been a lot of a lot of misunderstandings going on. In fact, my old aunt Pat had pampas grass outside her front, and I'm very very much convinced she wouldn't have been involved in that sort. of <laughs> Still, you never know with the posh ones, do you? Anyway, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and and this is this is sort of an indication of just how widespread discussion of Chelsea's transfer policy has become. Um, somebody who who I cannot re- reveal contacted me to say, "Do you know, Kieran, that you are you've been quoted on the uh, the National Swingers website um, <laughs> message board?" And I'm going, "What?" <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I can be quite a prude. Um, and, and they said, yes, yeah, they quoted you with regards to, there was for some reason the, the the normal discussions sort of descended into something to do with Chelsea's uh, uh, Chelsea's transfer policy. And and yes, my name is now up on the Swingers, uh, the, the Swingers website, which is uh, something I've not yet mentioned to the Baroness and I might forget to mention it as well right. so very 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 bizarre you might like to um, you might like to warn her kieran just in case it's a you know the milkman that you've never had knocks on the door in the morning just <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um but but back to tom's question um in terms of i think what's happened here when there is a swap deal it is dependent upon both transfers taking place um and uh, you and I are both old enough to remember Neil Smiley and Gary Williams yeah. being swapped in yeah. the early eight. And Neil Smiley was brilliant. Yeah, uh, he, he, pl- he played in the Cup final in 1983. Yeah. Um, so, so that's when you it, it saves aggravation from the club's point of view. Um, they, they're both looking to shift a little bit off payroll. They don't particularly want to get involved in a fee, um, and and it can smooth things around. What appears to have happened here is that we have two transactions which are independent of one another. So um, Notts um, wanted to sign uh, Sedwin Scott, and even if the deal had gone through, they were not obliged to then sell Lewis Knight back to Gateshead. Now, what probably happened was um, they said they said to, to Lewis Knight, oh, by the way, we've signed this lad. Look, we've got, we've got to be honest here, Lewis. Um Good chance he's going to be ahead of you in the pecking order. Mm. If you want to, you can go to Gateshead, but you've still got an outstanding contract. There's no obligation. So can you see that there's with a with a swap deal, you have to have all of the parts in approval at the same point in time. Um, I think what's happened here um, is that Knotts had bought the player. Um, Gateshead then had a bit of cash. They looked around for a striker and they said, "Hold on, Knotts, uh, you know." We, we quite fancy Lewis Knight. Yeah, we've looked at some others and we, we think he, he's, he fits the profile. So I, it, it could be that the, the two deals are 
are independent of one another. Um, so it, it is different from a straight swap deal. In terms of um, doing it to allow uh, higher profits on disposal, I, I don't think that's anything to do with it. Um, that at, at this, as he sort of intimated, at this level of football, um, you're not talking millions upon millions of um, artificially inflated profits from from player transactions. Yeah, if we had any lingering worries about whether BAFTA was still here, I think the moment you revealed that there was nothing sexual in the relationship between Gateshead and Notts County was <laughs> probably the moment they decided to disappear. Um, just for my benefit, if not for the benefit of newer listeners as well, Kieran, can you remind me why clubs are allowed to uh, leave a fee as undisclosed? Because it would seem counterintuitive to you, you know, all your talk about openness and publicity in accounts. Well, in in terms of individual deals, um, sometimes let, let, let's say that people think you've got a budget of fifty million this summer, and if you go and sign a player for forty million, then selling clubs know that you really have not got a lot of money left. So, so by keeping the fees undisclosed, you're creating a little bit of uncertainty. Um, I, I know practically all of Brighton's transfer deals when we buy players are for undisclosed fees, but we are owned by a poker player. And you know he will say, never reveal anything of your hand. And, and that's why we are seeing um, individual fees because these are private companies. You know, nobody, nobody's entitled to know what you or I earn because you know, that is private information. Well, these are private limited companies and therefore they would argue that in terms of Individual transactions, we're not going to give anything away, just in respect of individual wage deals that don't give anything away. And then if there's a statutory obligation, as as there is, to disclose the total amount of money paid in wages, that's when the club will show it. And similarly, uh, the clubs are obliged to show the total amount paid in a financial year for all of the players collectively that they've purchased during that period. So it's it's simply a case of that there there is no legal obligation to show things on a on a forensic or stroke granular level in terms of individual purchases and sales of clubs. Sometimes they choose to do it because they're normally trying to send out a message to either the fan base, you know, look at us, we've just gone and spent so much so many millions on a player. Sometimes they they would rather keep it close to their chest chest. So that's interesting, Kieran. So HMRC, for example, have got no right to ask how much a particular player has cost Brighton. All you have to do is declare at the end of the season how much your club has spent in total on transfers. Well, that's right. I mean, what what would happen is because if if you've bought the player, and this sort of yes, this is sort of slightly treading on the toes of our next question. If if you if you do buy a player, um, what you're actually playing for is the player's registration. And you agree a compensation fee with the selling fee. And there could be VAT implications there. So when you submit your next VAT return, you'd have to show how much VAT was arisen for that, that month or that quarter. But again, on in terms of individual transactions, you don't have to show it. Well, that next question you mentioned comes from Christopher Saunders. And it is about my least favorite, most confusing financial thing. Uh, and basically, Christopher Saunders has a simple question, which probably won't have a simple answer because nothing about VAT does. Is VAT on transfer fees and agents' fees reclaimable? Also, should reverse charge be added to transfers? Um, this, this is very complicated, and, and I did read up on a blog on it, so, but I'm going to try to keep it quick um, uh, just, because just, I'm, I'm, 
Just one second, Kieran. It's not the wife swappers blog. Can we make? <laughs> yes. Just, 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 just checking for a friend, Kieran. That's fine. And what, what, um, what name do you go under, by the way, on the wife swap? Never mind, Kieran. That's fine. <laughs> Yours. <laughs> That'll be why the door's not knocking, mate. <laughs> that's right. Um, so if it's a, if it's a transfer between two clubs based in the UK. Then, then there is VAT arising, um, and that VAT is is reclaimable um, because it's it's not a it's not a capital asset. It's it's simply a registration fee that you're acquiring. Um, in terms of reverse charges, um, I, I read about ten pages of this, and I got increasingly baffled. Um, all, all I'll say is that post Brexit, things are getting increasingly complicated. Um, and uh, as part of the ongoing negotiations, I think between uh, Her Majesty's government, or his, sorry, His Majesty's government, and the EU, um, this will become uh, slightly clearer, probably in about twenty thirty seven, uh, judging by the pace of progress. So uh, the VA position, position, if it's player going from Birmingham to West Bromwich Albion, not a problem. Um, if, if they're going from Ghent to uh, West Bromwich Albion, then uh, th- there shouldn't really be any VAT charged anyway, I think, because no. you're, you're going from a, uh, a, a non-E, from an EU country to a non-EU country, um, and therefore sort of the, the, the normal VAT position doesn't apply. Is there a simple way of even pre-seeing what reverse charge actually is, Kieran, that, that I might understand? Um, a, a reverse charge effect, effectively says that if you are acquiring something, let, let's say um, that uh, somebody wanted to uh, have a script written, you know, a, a comedy script written, yeah. and if you did it, you were going to charge them, say, you know, five thousand pounds plus VAT. But if a French, uh, uh, if a French comedy writer did it, um, because they're not in the EU. Um, they could only they'd only have to charge five thousand pounds. So therefore, the buyer might go, well, I'll go to the the non EU person because that means I can effectively get the the, the VAT recovered. Disappears a lot quicker. Um, so the VAT reversal is a way of trying to address that, but it is fiendishly complicated. Um, and and I it was it was certainly one of the reasons I, I did used to teach tax many many years ago uh, and it was the type of thing which uh, uh, made me uh, take a swift exit yeah just to simplify things even further Kieran if I were to charge another comedian five thousand pound to write a script for them they would uh, get round that by going to the comedian who would inevitably do it for five hundred pound uh, right. I have a high opinion of my beliefs, but that's um, I don't want people at home thinking, why? Why is he doing this pod when he's earning that sort of dosh, writing jokes for people? <laughs> uh, especially with HMRC are listening, let's be fair. Um, John Gordon has our next question. And John says, I can only imagine the amount of revenue that is generated by betting companies during the football season. Well, I don't think mm. John needs to imagine anymore. I'm sure we know somebody who might be able to have a guess. <laughs> but, but John says, and this is... Um, Actually, again, it's one of those simple questions that I love because you you kind of think, why haven't I thought of this before? How, says John, do they plug this hole during the summer when there is no domestic football? Um, and I imagine it's worse if there isn't a World Cup or European Championships. Now, I, I, yeah, we know Kieran sport never stops and there's cricket and tennis, mm. but I, I don't think people will gamble as much on cricket and tennis 
or football friendlies in Peru as they would do on the Premier League or the EFL would do. Well, yes. If if we take a look at uh, the position of betting companies and, and sort of just in, in respect of your first sentence, John, um, bet three six five probably. I think I generated somewhere in the region of sixty two, sixty three billion pounds in uh, in wages wow. last year, which is around about twelve times the amount of money that the Premier League generated. So, I'm, I'm gonna uh, bet, say, betting I'm, is sorry, betting's I'm, big industry. I know I'm interrupting again, Kieran, but I'm going to say what I always say when you mention that figure: that's billion, sixty three, sixty four billion, yeah, in wages alone. Yes. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and they'll probably be making a bit more uh, next weekend because. Uh, it's Crystal Palace versus Brighton, and I will be placing my customary Brighton to lose bet um, because uh, I, I, I view this as an emotional hedge, and I know you view this as heresy. Of I, 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 we, we have our, there's very few things we disagree on, Kieran. It turns out wife swapping is one of them, but um, <laughs> also betting against your own team. The way the way both teams are playing at the moment, Kieran, I wouldn't I wouldn't put more than a fiver on that. Basically, yeah, perfectly <laughs> So in, in terms of, of football, um, based on, on the latest data, uh, football probably generates around about 40% of the total sports betting. So, so John's absolutely right. There are, there are peaks and troughs um, in terms of the uh, correlation with uh, domestic football taking place and the bookmakers um, tend to do uh, quite well out of a – World Cup or, or champ, European Championship, but also other, yeah, also Olympics. Um, football, however, uh, I think there's a case for saying that, it, it, you know, and, and I'll, I don't mean to be inflammatory. Football's a bit like an entry drug as far as the gambling industry are concerned. Yeah, you know, they, they they want to get you, and um, the because there is so much competition in football uh, in gambling, um, the, the odds are actually quite competitive. Because you can go to places. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a big gambler, but you know, I'd go to somewhere like Odds Checker. I'd try to get the best odds on an individual match or an individual player, whatever it's going to be. Um, and therefore, if if the gambling companies want your money, and there are these sort of you know, these indices of the, the different odds, so so it is actually quite uh, it's quite tight the margins on on football gambling. Where, where the betting companies make their money is it's sort of, oh, you, you know, you, yeah, we, we saw you place a bet a couple of weeks ago, Kieran. Um, fancy a few free slots and you, you yeah. get involved in the slots. And um, the, the the margins there uh, on you know, online bingo slots, if they're, if they're running poker competitions, they'll take a slice of the action and so on. Um, the, 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 the margins there are far more lucrative. So... Um, what what the gambling companies want to do, uh, and, and you know we're we're not we're not over keen on some of their uh, their, bet, their their practices, but at the same time we we gamble ourselves, and uh, you know we, we we try to act in a uh, in a mature and adult manner with it. But, but it's it's, it's uh, it can be quite an insidious industry. Mm. Um, they, they are keen to get you to find other forms of gambling, and if they've managed to do that, you know, and you know, horse racing is significant, and uh, there are summer sports. Um, then, then it, things can become very lucrative, and, and you and I both know footballers and ex-footballers who were betting, and, and the sport became an irrelevance. Yeah, it was just that that glazed expression put on the bet, put on the bet, put on the bet, um, and, and therefore it, it didn't matter that there was no domestic football because 
you know, somebody was playing 10-pin bowling in, in Paraguay and uh, it, you, you had money to burn in your bank account. Yeah, two points I'd like to make off the back of that, Kieran. One uh, less serious than the other. It was um, Max Rushton and Charlie Baker's show, as I guess, in TalkSport. Oh, cool. <clears throat> two people I like very much, and I love that show. Uh, yes. Charlie Baker, referring to the Palace-Brighton game next week, said, uh, do you even call it a derby? So there was a, a brief pause while I fluffed my fur like Smudge does when she sees her reflection in the window and says, no, uh, Charlie, we don't call it a derby. We call it the biggest game in world football. Um, which I, he, took, he took in good part. He took it on the chin. I, I underlined that with two minutes of why it's the biggest game in world football. But secondly, on the, um, the invidiousness of gambling, I was, the, the minister in charge of horse racing uh, this week made a speech saying that he wanted the industry to drop affordability checks. He wanted betting companies to stop even the most cursory checks on big gamblers as to whether they could afford to set up credit lines because uh, otherwise horse racing was losing money. And I was very disappointed mm. to read in the Racing Post that the uh, presenter of ITV Racing, who is a very, very good presenter, very good broadcaster, uh, applauding that call and trying to make a distinction between sporting punters horse racing punters, people who were trying to beat the system and, and find a horse that would beat the bookies, making the distinction between them and the people that sit mindlessly, aimlessly on, on gambling machines in, in bookies. Mm. Because personally, and in my experience, we know people for whom that's a very short step mm. between uh, being somebody who sees himself as a sporting gambler trying to beat the system and becoming dangerously addicted. So... Um, that's, again, it's something we will continue to talk about, Kieran, because the influence of the betting industry on sport, and, and, and as you say, we say this as people who, who will happily put a tenner on a horse once a week, it's, it's, something's got to change, and um, it will eventually. I'm still, do you know what, Kieran, you know when you said last week that it's, there's actually not, there's no legal reason why you can't have gambling sponsors on the front of your shirts, and everyone... Everyone was astonished. Alcohol. Alco Sorry, alcohol. Um, yeah. Beg your pardon. Uh, I found that really interesting that you can't have alcohol. You can technically have alcohol sponsors. So if you can, it's, it's going to be a long time before the Premier League kick the gambling drug when there's so much money available from people like Bet365 to individual football clubs, but not to the game because football doesn't charge a levy. At least mm. horse racing charges a levy to the gambling companies to get some money out of it. But well, th this is. I mean, I I made a presentation to the all party parliamentary group mm. some time ago, um, and this was one of the issues that I raised. You know, I'm I'm not in favour of prohibition. I think prohibition yeah, is, okay. is, a, is a dangerous uh, route to go down, and we've seen in respect of alcohol how, how it simply won't work. Um, but uh, the gambling industry is the single largest beneficiary of the success of the Premier League and also the the rise of, of the apps and smartphones and tablets where uh, I, I believe now the, the, the bookmakers on the high street generate 4% of the total revenue of, of all of, of the gambling industry as a whole. So yeah, yeah there has been there's been a shift in behavior um, and Shifts in behaviour is, is 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 a constant in society, and, and uh, you know it, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It, it's a thing which has consequences, of course. Um, and, and this was one of the suggestions which I I made to say, well, well, let's acknowledge that as as the gambling industry is the single big, biggest beneficiary, um, 
then it's probably in a position to um, offer more support um, on a, on a broader level of football, and at such a uh, a levy on individual football bets would go some way towards um, reducing the gap between the Premier League and the EFL, providing uh, greater. Uh, resources at grassroots football um, and so on. And, and to be fair, you know, there are some gambling companies which do that off their own back. But mm. I, I think this would have perhaps raised more money. And I, I was uh, I was quite surprised at the, at the, at the very instant pushback um, that that generated um, across the board. You know, this, this is not a party political issue. Um, and you know, to me, as, as, as a sort of a nerd who just sort of looks at other industries. If it, if it works in the horse racing industry, why can't it work in, in the football industry? Especially as we said, you know that, that football is the uh, is is the biggest contributor of of mainline sport to to the gambling industry itself. Um, but uh, it would appear that uh, you know, the people in Parliament and you know they 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 have to represent a variety of stakeholders. Don't think that that's a very good idea. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Our next question, Kieran, comes from Alex Smith, and it's another interesting one. Alex says, how far down the football pyramid does a football creditor go when a club goes into administration? Are they obliged to pay anyone that's an affiliated club that they may owe money to, regardless of status? Uh, A bit extreme, but even a Sunday league team. And what is considered a football debt? Is it transfer fees, wages, bonuses? Um, With with regards to this, Alex, the the football creditor transfer does apply to um two major stakeholder groups which is which is first of all um uh, players and secondly uh, other clubs with regards to outstanding transfer fees um i don't think it, it doesn't apply to agents by the way um, okay. they they are not deemed to be part of that um that particular relationship so if a sunday league team had sold a player to and I think it would be difficult because um, I think the re- registration would expire pretty quickly yeah. uh, to, to a professional club. Then, then in theory, um, they, they could be entitled to a hundred percent of what's owed to them before that before the club um, can then pay twenty five percent of its unsecured creditors and therefore you know satisfy the rules with regards to a, a non payment of an exit fee from administration. Um, but it, it would it is. It is transfer fees and money owed to players, but not money owed to agents. Is there a, a hierarchy, uh, Kieran? Is there a, a, a list, an order in which clubs have to? You, who is the, the sort of senior creditor? Is is there anyone who needs to be paid first? 
Um, yes, the administrator. Oh, uh, right. Okay. Um, because otherwise they wouldn't do the job. Right, yeah, and um, right. yeah, 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 yeah. I used to I used to work in that industry, and people say, look, look at the fees that are being charged, and um, you know, the administrators would say, yeah, that's 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 the fee for a professional job, and, and I, I. I tends to highlight how much the administrators have earned from high profile jobs such as Wigan and Derby. Um, you know, and you know, the average fee of 400 pounds an hour, uh, seems to be an awful lot of hours clocked to those jobs. Uh, you know, is, is very lucrative for the organization. So, so they come first. Um, then, uh, if the, uh, if, if the lender has what's referred to as a secured loan, so that's the equivalent of, um, you or I having a mortgage, um, then they are next in the pecking order because they are they are uh, secured creditors. Um, then we have, uh, under normal circumstances, uh, the the government in terms of HMRC. Uh, then we have the unsecured creditors. So if you owed money, for example, on on a credit card, that's going to be unsecured. It's uh, so therefore you, the the credit card company would get twenty five percent, thirty percent. The the pie seller. The, the the people that provide transport to the club to go into away matches they would get x percent and if they are paid off in full then any remaining money would go to the shareholders would go to the owners um, of the club normally if you go into administration you'd expect that to be zero um, it, it's very rare for a for a club going into administration to pay off all of the unsecured creditors and then have a distribution to the shareholders because if, if the club's finances were that good, it wouldn't have gone into administration in the first place. Um, but but that's 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 that is the the order and it is it is set in statute. Um, HMRC are unhappy with the uh, player or rather the football industry preferred status. Um, they did try a test case uh, in, I think it was in 2012, and that failed. Um, but I think there is talk about them trying again, especially in the light of what we saw happen at Derby, whereby the, the people from HMRC say it seems harsh that Arsenal get paid 100%. Arsenal, very wealthy, very successful football club. And we, the taxpayer, we, we've been persuaded to accept uh, 25%. Uh, on the grounds that if we didn't, the club would go out of business altogether. It seems even more harsh that Arsenal will get paid in full and the catering company that uh, is owed money won't, mm. rather than yes. uh, my sympathies are with them rather than HMRC in that situation. Now, yeah. uh, our next question, Kieran, I, I really don't know how to approach this, Kieran, because we've, we've had this caveat before. It comes from our Australian friend, Larkin Hogel. Um, mm. Every time I read a question from Larkin Hogel, I feel I have to explain why it is that his questions seem to get read out with some regularity. I don't know whether Larkin sent 20 questions three years ago and they're all just coming to... I don't know whether he has some information into exactly why producer guy's great-great-grandfather was transported all those years ago. <laughs> I don't know what hold he had. I don't know whether producer guy had... Possibly in his younger days, an ill-advised wife-swapping trip of his own to Melbourne. Who knows? <laughs> but for whatever reason, Larkin seems to get like a like a terrible magician. You can just see this. Like, he seems to work his way to the top of the pile. Uh, his questions are always interesting, though. And Larkin's question sure. is this. Major League Baseball, says Larkin, is the only major US sports league without a salary cap. However, they do use a luxury tax, which forces teams spending above a certain level to pay a tax that's then distributed to the teams below 
the threshold. Would such a system work in the Premier League? The main criticism in Major League Baseball is it props up never winning clubs such as Pittsburgh and Baltimore who receive the luxury tax benefit but still never spend enough to compete consistently. I would love to hear your thoughts. Yes, I I think this um, has some merit. Um, I I think there is a fair chance that we might have a white paper in respect of the regulation of football um, soon, very soon, perhaps. And um, this is certainly one of the things which um, was was discussed as part of of the fan-led review. Um, But instead of having a luxury tax on wages, it was effectively a luxury tax on football transfers. And it, it would work in that if there are transfers from Premier League Club A to Premier League Club B, such as uh, Moises Caicedo to uh, Arsenal or Chelsea, um, which according to his agents is, is, is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, yeah. um, which, which will be strange given that he's going to be sold in the summer. Um, but um, if there was, let's say, a, a luxury tax of 10% in respect of intra-Premier League transfers, then that money could be distributed to grassroots. Um, I, I think uh, if there were transfers from the EFL to the Premier League, there wouldn't be that luxury tax. So this would encourage, and, and here we can sort of encourage virtue spending as opposed to uh, you know uh, bad spending. So uh, if if you if a player went from Plymouth to uh, Plymouth to Bournemouth, then uh, there would be no tax there, and I think also if the if the, if the players were coming from outside of the Premier League, uh, from a, from another European or or, or uh, other destination, the, the the tax would apply there. Um, so so that I think this this would a way that would generate extra money. Could that also work in in terms of uh, having it on wages? It could, but I think one of my always slight reservations is you end up with lots and lots of different systems. If you've got one cost control system taking place in the Premier League and another cost control system taking place in UEFA, and they are significantly inconsistent with one another, then uh, it, it, it gets very, very messy because you end up complying for UEFA and not complying with the Premier League and vice versa. So if, if we take a look at what happened to Wolverhampton Wanderers, when they were promoted from the Championship, I think their first season promoted uh, to the Premier League, they finished seventh and they ended up playing in, in one of the UEFA competitions. And they ended up being sanctioned by UEFA because UEFA's financial fair play limit was €30 million. Euro. The Premier League's was €105 million sterling. So they broke the UEFA rules, got sanctions there didn't break the Premier League rules. So, so it, I think it certainly has some merit. Um, effectively, what it's saying that if you want to go and uh, I think the I think the technical phrase we've seen used this week uh, in the newspapers is splurge uh, <laughs> money money on players, um, and you want to do that in the form of wages, then then you you pay a you pay a uh, a, a a fiscal penalty, and that gets redistributed elsewhere in football. So it, it could work for every rule. There's a loophole. So, you know, what would happen, let's let's say, you know, Palace sell a player to Millwall who then goes to um, Aston Villa. So mm. Millwall don't pay a, uh, 
attacks because they're in the championship. Aston Villa have just bought the player from a team in the championship, so they don't pay the tax. Now, you know, can you see, if I can come up with that from you know reading Larkin's original email, and I'm sure that there will be, there will be some caveats and checks and balances. The, the more rules you have, the more loopholes you have, and uh, you know the the silver tongued brigade in in both the accounting and the the legal profession will will be pouring over the rules to to try to find the weaknesses in them. We have a question coming up, a very good one about the uh, multi club model, mm. and again, just even I can see that the multi club model would be a very easy way of getting around the luxury tax as well, wouldn't it? You just shift a player, out, you shift a player Absolutely. out to Antwerp and then shift them back. Um, our free penultimate question, Kieran, and I'm going to keep using that phrase which I learned it several weeks ago, the one before <laughs> penultimate, uh, comes from Scott Akehurst Moore. And again, it's a lovely question. Scott says, as you may have noticed, our Broth were one mm. game away from reaching the Scottish Premier League last season. It would have been fantastic. Our Broth players are all part-time. Their success was built on the fact that their excellent part-time players wanted to stay part-time as they could earn more money by having another job versus playing full-time in another Scottish lower league team. My question is, would there be any advantage to a club following this model financially, PAE-wise, PAYE-wise, FFP-wise, or any other reason? And do top leagues require clubs to have full-time players? Right. Um, in, in respect of Scott's initial question, um, th- there are some potential advantages um, from a PAYE perspective in the sense that uh, you might end up paying less uh, employers' national insurance. Um, From an FFP point of view, um, we're sort of entering the Sopranos here. Uh, I think I I remember watching Tony Soprano and and everybody from the Badder Bing uh, having what they refer to as no-show jobs, so in in the construction industry in uh, in, in New Jersey, for, for fans of the surprise, you may recall that uh, in order to get the unions on board, Tony Soprano and many of his friends had to be employed in inverted commas by the construction company. They picked up a wage each week, um, and and this th- th- this does sometimes happen in football, whereby if you are close to the FFP limit. What happens is either a a relative of the player or uh, perhaps the the sponsors of the football club give the player a second form of employment, and and this 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 can work out quite well um, in lower league football if if you don't want to put costs through the books of the club itself. So so there are some uh, advantages. Do top leagues require clubs to have full-time players? Uh, the answer to that is no. There would have been no obligation oh. um, on our growth to go full-time had they reached the oh. Scottish Premiership, um, apart from you know the desire of the club to want to compete and, and perhaps consider that a, a full-time professional model um, would therefore be, be beneficial. I mean, th- there's no obligation uh, on, on players in in League Two, for example, and, and we look at the National League, you know, some teams are, are full-time professionals, some teams aren't. So uh, it, it would be done for fiscal reasons in terms of how much can the owner of the club afford to subsidise in terms of losses and things like that as much as anything else. Do you know what, Kieran, you surprised me there. I, I always assumed, um, I never even bothered to look it up because that's what an assumption does to you, I always assumed that once you're in the 92, for example, in, in England, then you had to have a full-time playing squad. So, uh, so what would happen then? 
because it's a constant uh, debate we have with fans of National League clubs that their players aren't always allowed to join the PFA. I wonder, would a, would a part-time player in League Two, for example, be allowed to join the PFA? I, I, I'm surprised by that. I, I genuinely thought it would be a requirement. We will we will make representations to PFA and try to get them on to do uh, Ask the PFA special. Yeah, that would be great. That would be good, actually, yeah. Um, and hopefully, you mentioned that white paper as well. We, we're making representations to get somebody uh, vaguely uh, legal or MP-ish. Is that the phrase, MP-ish? I don't know. Uh, to come and talk to us about that when it happens. Um, uh, I don't know if, if only we knew somebody who knew Tracy Crouch, Kieran. That would be... Well, talking of Tracy Crouch and going back to one of our early questions, we were talking whoa, about whoa, the whoa, whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, not the, not please, no, no, please no, 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 okay, okay, good. no, no, right. no. <laughs> um, in, in respect of gambling, yeah, um, Tracy Crouch, of course, famously resigned um, yes. as as a point of principle when. Uh, the government rejected her recommendation when she was effectively the sports minister um, to uh, reduce uh, slot machines from being able to take £100 at a time uh, and reduce it to to £2 at a time, which will still empty your wallet ridiculously quickly. But um, uh, and and, as as a conviction politician, uh, she she did that. And uh, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, I I quite like conviction politicians who, who do have principles. I'm only too pleased to point out, Kieran, because we are often accused of being on a certain uh, political wing, if you like, left-wing liberal. Um, uh, I don't mind being accused of that, but only too happy to to congratulate politicians of any party who have yeah. the, a, a principle like that. And that's just one of the many reasons we like talking to Tracy Crouch. Um, our next question, Kieran, comes from Lars Grimm. Now, I, I like – this is my – you know this is my highest accolade. I like the cut of Lars Grimm's jib, uh, mainly because he says uh, it's Lars, and then in brackets he puts, yes, I do have a brother, Grimm, (laughs) which which is just, A, it's splendidly chippy. uh, And and let's face it, he must have had his whole life doing that. But also, B, it does head me off at the past, because if he hadn't caught that, I would have been, I'd be halfway through a list of fairy tale puns. As we speak, so I'm not. I'm not going to do that. Except I will point out. I don't even know if it's a brother's grim story, but I will point out as the legendary, uh, for no apparent reason, Malcolm Hardy uh, used to say that uh, if you've got an ugly duckling that turns into a swan, what you have there's a signet. Basically, <laughs> ugly ducklings turn into ducks. Let's see. That's we just so that's established. But last, <laughs> uh, that made me chuckle so much. Yes, I do have a brother. Um, <laughs> but Lars Grimm has the question I mentioned about the multi-club model in competition. What are the restrictions, uh, says Lars, regarding multi-club ownership and the risk of competitive conflicts of interest? My understanding is that you can't be a majority shareholder for two clubs in the same league. It's the same truth for clubs at different levels of the football pyramid where promotion and relegation could put clubs in the same league in the future or the FA Cup could match them up. What about clubs in different countries competing in the Champions League or even the Club World Cup. Mm. And given the push for more multi-club ownership, this seems to be a growing potential problem. One area, Kieran, is, as we've talked about uh, privately recently, uh, I don't know how it came up, was it UEFA have uh, slightly more relaxed attitudes to what consist, con- constitutes a majority shareholder, don't they, I believe, for European clubs. In the, in the Premier League, it's, I think it's 10%. It's fairly rigid. That, that's right. Whereas yep. I think UEFA only specify a significant percentage is that true 
Yes, in in the Premier League, you can't own more than 10% of of two clubs. Um, And I think in UEFA, it's 30. Right. Um, But then we... I think Lars raised a a very valid point. Um, And also with some of the the issues in terms of being able to to shift players and profits around in terms of transfers, that is open to abuse. Um, And uh, it doesn't mean it is abused, uh, but you've only got to look at the the level of transactions between Watford and Udinese to go, God, they get on very well, those two clubs, don't they? Um, uh, uh, But we've seen uh, Red Bull and RB Leipzig, um, you know, they they have once ended up playing each other in a UEFA competition, and uh, yeah, hats off to their lawyers. Um, they, they they apparently said that the RB in RB Leipzig had nothing to do with Red Bull. <laughs> um, so, and 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 they got that one through, but it 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 does uh, it does give a potential threat to issues of sporting integrity. Um, there has been talk, in fact, in the press this very week about the possibility of uh, a, a FIFA pushback on on this, but uh, you could end up opening a bigger can of worms. It will be subject to legal claims, restriction of competition by UEFA, um, sorry, by, by FIFA, and then we, we could end up with a Watford and Udinese uh, position just, just, be, just because the owners happen to have the same surnames mm. doesn't mean that they're the same person. You know, here it could be father and son. Well, yeah, if, if you say, well, if it's sort of a linear relationships aren't allowed, then it becomes father and son-in-law, uh, or daughter-in-law, or, or you know, first cousin. Can you, can you see that the the scope for manipulation, uh, if if the rules are introduced, is is quite significant. Um, and yeah, I, I go back to, to Law 101 for every rule, there's a loophole. Mm. Uh, there's still, I, mean, I know I've mentioned this every time we mention the multi-club ownership thing, but there's still a lot of confusion amongst Palace fans as to how John Texter uh, mm. is able to buy Leon completely. To, you know, he owns Leon Football Club as far as we understand, but has a much bigger share than 10% in Palace, he's the the major shareholder, but not quite the majority shareholder. I understand, but again, it's difficult to get full things. So that's something I'd like. I know you've got a very busy list, Kieran, including at the moment cutting the pampas grass from the front of your garden. You <laughs> could look into that text of all that would be great. Um, in the meantime, our final question comes from David Zhao. Uh, apologies, David, if I mispronounced your surname, but I think that's right. David Zhao says it seems clear that big teams are hoarding more of the lower table club's best players to sit on their bench simply because they're allowed more substitutes now. I'm not a fan of the, the more subs. Well, financially, that's me saying that, not David, although I think David agrees. Financially, teams who previously struggled for top half finishes will surely struggle even more now that these bigger teams have much stronger benches. Surely this means they are less likely to break the mould, for example, Burnley, uh, Sheffield United, getting into the Premier League and doing so well for a short time. The financial disparity will widen as a result. Mm. And they will struggle even more to achieve top half finishes and therefore won't receive the bigger cash bonuses that come with them. And so the spiral continues downwards. Yes, uh, the the gap between rich and poor, uh, first of all, within the Premier League and secondly, between the Premier League and the Championship and thirdly, between the Championship and League One, um, 
is is likely to grow. Um, big teams are hoarding talent. Uh, you know, we we've had. Yeah, let's go back to what's happened with Chelsea. I, I believe they 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 signed eight players in January, of whom three of only three are being able to be registered for yeah. uh, the UEFA competition for the second half of the season. So that uh, that does seem uh, yeah a, a bit a bit crazy. So Obama Young, I think, has he gone back to Barcelona to sulk uh, because he's not on the UEFA list? Uh, I think that might be the case. Um, so it, it it does open up opportunities. Um, ha- having said that, you know, and I'm not saying because it happens to be us, you've got you've, you've got Fulham, Brentford and Brighton ahead of Liverpool and Chelsea mm. at present in, in the yeah, Premier League. Yeah, yeah. Now, that could very much be a one-off and I'm sure you hope quite a lot of that is a one-off anyway. Um, but uh, it's the the five substitutes, it, it's interesting seeing the reaction from different clubs um, I know that my club and I think Brentford as well are both in favour of five substitutions because they use sort of more of a, a swarm-based uh, approach to to, to to player development um, and, and therefore they try to get players who are interchangeable um, and therefore it's easier to, to, to bring many of them off the bench. Um, uh, so it, it, it's, it's, it's not a clear-cut one. And remember, if, if you... Even if you are a bit part player in in a major Premier League club, you 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 want to be there from the start of each game, and 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 it can result in a lot of unhappy players. And unhappy players can create an unhappy dressing room, which can mean to you know an overall drop in standards at the club. So it's it's not an open and cut case, or even an open shut case. Yeah, I, I, I sort of agree with you there. I mean, it, it made perfect sense when football came back during the pandemic and in the, the post pandemic season. It, it made perfect sense to allow more subs because players were, were of course, less fit and, and players may have gone down be struggling with, with viruses or the after effect during a game. But you know, as you see in the World Cup, I mean, it's, it's quite clear in the early rounds of the World Cup, you've got Argentina losing to Saudi Arabia. Mm. Not only have Argentina got a much better bench, but in, in that game, they've got 20 minutes of injury time added on as well. These, yeah. these are all... Yeah. These are all ways and means of FIFA getting the better teams to win the, the tournament and you know you should argue the best team should always win the tournament but as when Leicester won the, the Premier League in 2016 you'd imagine Kieran if Brentford, Brighton and Fulham do end the season ahead of Chelsea and Liverpool Chelsea and Liverpool will take drastic steps to make sure that doesn't happen next season and yeah. those drastic steps will involve billions of pounds of money uh, yes because eventually they will they will shoot teams like Brighton, Brentford and Fulham out of the water Oh yeah, yeah, there's yeah. no doubt about that, and and the the reaction of the the Premier League big clubs to Leicester City winning the the Premier League in 2016 was they bullied the rest of the Premier League into changing the distribution money the sorry, the distribution model for money from. Uh, international broadcasting, which used to be split evenly between all 20 clubs yeah. um, so that the big clubs took a bigger share of it um, because they wanted to ensure that Leicester never won or another Leicester never took place. Um, not actually because they were that much bothered about Leicester winning the Premier League. It was the fact that Leicester had the barefaced cheek to take one of the Champions League yeah, places, yeah, yeah. which those clubs believed to be theirs by right 
because they happen to have richer owners or they happen to historically have been uh, a bigger club. And and that's where that's where I feel really uncomfortable. Yeah, we we both remember Derby County, Forest, Villa, Blackburn, Leeds United, Everton, all winning the top division. Yeah. Um, in in this country, partly due to the fact that they were actually able to develop a squad yep. over two or three years, as opposed to what happens now, you've got a couple of players that do play well, and they just get instantly eaten up by the by the vultures at the top of uh, of the Premier League, and you never actually have a chance to develop that that promising eleven into a you know a, a decent sixteen, which could perhaps challenge for you know, something. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, then that would be very kind of you. And please go to patreon.com slash price of football and join the ever-growing number of people who are doing that each week. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, then it helps if your name is Larkin Hogel. But other than that, then please email us <laughs> questions at priceoffootball.com. Uh, if you have any compromising pictures of producer guy, send those as an attachment. I'm sure you will go to the top of the list. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire, so his customary farewell. Well, thank you to everybody at Patreon. Thank you for everybody who has also interacted with us. Um, we, uh, we we do try to, to to answer all of your questions in due course, and not just Larkins. Um, <laughs> if, if you want to support the club, the club, if you want to support the podcast, even <laughs> um, in, in another way, um, the way you can do that is is by giving us a review. We we don't Kevin and I we don't really understand why, but guy. Producer guy always says, uh, you know, algorithms, charts, uh, places in the league table, and so on. Um, and the more reviews, the the, the higher up the, the charts you go. Um, by all accounts, uh, it, it doesn't matter what you say in the narrative. So you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Vinnie Jones and Julian Clary. I, I think they'd get on like a house on fire. I think it'd be a fantastic show. And I'd certainly listen myself. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, uh, I, one of those likes me a lot more than. The other, uh, right? Julian uh, is Julian's delightful man. I remember him so well uh, back in the days when I first started alternative comedy with the wonderful Fanny the Wonder Dog. Yes, Vinnie Jones. I have uh, less fond memories of. Uh, yeah, I got, I got introduced to him. Uh, at, I can't remember which sports do it was, but we were introduced to each other, and he held my hand very tightly for several moments, gazed directly into my eyes and went, oh, yeah, I, and I won't use the exact word, Kieran, but it starts with a C and it ends with a T. He went, you're that palace, aren't you? Uh, oh. To which I could only reply, that's Mr. Palace uh, to you, <laughs> which, which I thought might, might break the ice a little bit. I thought he might look at me and go, ah, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a fighty little lad, but no, it made it worse as it happened. Oh, right. Yeah, just made it worse. Julian Clary, lovely, lovely chap, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure. Vinny was young in those days. You know, he was, a, he was a, an alpha male in a, in a team of alpha males. And to be perfectly uh, fair to Vinny, uh, in his favour, he wasn't John Fashionu. Yes. So, let, let's, let's leave you there. Bye, BAFTA. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>